If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the BBC journalist and broadcaster Kavita Puri, who presents a Radio 4 series, Three Pounds in My Pocket, which tells the stories of Asians who came to Britain from the 1950s onwards. The programme returns for its third series tomorrow on the 6th of December. Here is a clip. Mohammed Ajib was finding success at work too. When he came to Britain in 1957, he was doing factory work. Almost 30 years later, he became the first mayor from an ethnic minority anywhere in the country. Ladies and gentlemen, the right worshipful, the Lord Mayor, Councillor Mohammed Ajib. That was the proudest moment of my life. Mohammed Ajib said his election was a step forward in race relations. People's potential, in my view, is determined not by the colour of their skin, but the opportunities which we afford them. In his living room in Bradford hangs a photograph. Mohammed is wearing his official robes and is tightly embracing his father, who travelled from his village in Mirpur to be with his son for the occasion. It would be the only time he came to visit England. I lost my mother when I was five. So my father was both my father and mother. I was emotionally very much attached to him, but I had to leave him when I was about 18. It was my earnest desire to have him with me on this very auspicious occasion. And he was, and uh, I can tell you that, we, we both were full of emotions. So that was a clip from the new series of Three Pounds in My Pocket. A few days ago, our editor, Rob Attar, met up with Kavita in the BBC studios in London to find out more about how Asian communities adapted to life in Britain several decades after they first arrived. So firstly, Kavita... I wonder if you could tell me about the origins of this project and also actually about the name Three Pounds in My Pocket, where that comes from. So Three Pounds um, comes from, well, it's something I heard when I was growing up. And people would say, oh, I came to this country with three pounds. And it's a bit like that Monty Python sketch where you go, don't be silly. You know, I didn't work down the, the mines for 25 hours a day. And then I started looking into it and it was pretty much true. The generation that came from the Indian subcontinent uh, when they came to Britain in the early post-war years, 
really did come with as little as three pounds because there were very strict uh, currency exchange rules in place in India and Pakistan at the time. And three pounds in the 50s would probably cover you for board and food for a week. So it's equivalent to about 50 quid. So it's really not very much. And the origins of the project really started over five years ago, or to be honest, maybe even started decades ago. (laughs) Because when I was growing up, I never learned about my origins, which are in India. Uh, We actually even go back to Pakistan, which is which was part of British India. Uh, I wasn't learning about it in schools. My parents didn't talk about it very much. And I would hear my dad talk about his early days, and I was always really fascinated. And I couldn't find any books about that very early post-war era. And so I started interviewing my father. And then I thought, hang on a sec, these are great stories. What about their friends and my aunts and my uncles. And I realized, no, no, I have to record these testimonies because these people were getting old and I and I wanted to record their histories in this country um, from those very kind of early years. And they are fascinating and funny and sometimes quite sad too. And which parts of the subcontinent did these migrants typically come from? Funnily enough, they came from just a handful of places. If you think about the Indian subcontinent, it is huge. Uh, But the main groups came from primarily the Punjab, which had experienced a lot of violence and disruption during partition. So many British Sikhs come from the Indian Punjab. In fact, they come from just a a number of, of villages. But Muslims and Hindus came as well from the Punjab. Uh, and, and the other places are Silet, again, a place that was disrupted by partition, and Mirpur in Pakistan administered Kashmir. A huge dam was built and displaced many people. And so uh, many Mirpuris came in the early 60s. But what's really interesting about those three places, uh, the Punjab, British Sikhs with the British Indian Army, Siletis, who since the 18th century were Laskers or sailors on the merchant ships, Mirpuris, some of whom worked um, in, in, in the boiler rooms during the Second World War. These were all groups that had relationships with Britain prior to independence. So there were already connections to Britain. And so when in 1948, the Nationality Act was passed and every member of the empire or former Commonwealth became citizens, They had people in places in Britain, and that's how chain migration happened afterwards. And so the current series looks specifically at the period around the 1980s. So at this point, how established did these South Asian communities feel in Britain? The 1980s are an important decade for the British South Asian community. But the series picks up where the second series ended, which were the 1981 riots. These riots had broken out from April of that year and were happening across the country during the summer. And the reasons for the riots were a mixture that was racism, poverty, distrust of the police. And it was was a time 
where racism was still rife, although the National Front wasn't as huge a political force as it had been. And the Scarman Report acknowledges that there were um, disadvantages towards the ethnic communities of Britain. And so things do begin to change. And that, post that report, an era of multiculturalism is ushered in. And that was a change for the British South Asian community because through places like the GLC or councils, certainly in Labour strongholds, cultural initiatives were supported, educational initiatives, places of worship, temples, gurdwaras, mosques were built. And so they were able to express themselves. And certainly for the second generation, that made a huge difference. And they could begin to define their sense of Britishness, which was very different from their parents' generation. So was there any not sure if conflict's the right word, but were there any disharmony between the younger generation and the older generation in terms of perhaps how they viewed their place in the country and their identity? (laughs) There's always disharmony between generations. But I think, especially for migrant communities, first and second generation, there is always a dislocation. And I think that the second generation who were perhaps growing up in the 70s and early 80s, suffered a lot of racism at school that they often didn't talk to their parents about. They didn't want to upset them. The responses to racism were quite different. The first generation would just say, just keep your head down, carry on. Um, they, They felt very much, as first generation do, that this wasn't their country. They it was, it was, you know, they'd only been there for um perhaps one or two decades by then. But their kids were born in this country. They felt British. And so when people said go home, home was Britain for them. They had nowhere else to go to. And so in the 80s, they were defining what it meant to be British, which is what they felt, but also South Asian heritage. And they did that in the art sector. And so you see in that decade film and theatre expressing that. I know we're talking about South Asians, but these are, to some extent, different communities, often defined by the parts of the subcontinent they come from and also by religion. To what extent did those differences increase during the 1980s? Multiculturalism was a good way and that it allowed groups to flourish in a way that they hadn't before. But many argue, and some in my documentaries do, that actually it made the communities look more inward and focus on what it meant to be Sikh or Hindu or Muslim. And so, in a sense, they saw what made them different, which is certainly what was happening on the Indian subcontinent, rather than how strong they could be collectively. And remember, in the early post-war years, they had fought together against uh, racism in all its forms. They'd been quite a strong unit. And what you see in the 80s, for many reasons, is the group dissipating and they're not a collective group and through various events that I'm sure we're going to talk about you see that they they have a, an identity that is much more British Sikh or British Hindu or British Muslim. Still to come on the History Extra podcast it was a great sadness that some of the language that they had heard when they came or when they were growing up had seeped back in This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So one of the events that I did want to talk to you about was the Satanic Verses and the impact that had, and I suppose the backlash towards that. How did that? shape the South Asian communities? So when the Satanic Verses happened in Bradford, so protests in response to Penguin's publication of the Satanic Verses, which some Muslims found as blasphemous and mocking their religion, there were different responses, and certainly within the Muslim community, there were different responses. So some South Asians that I spoke to didn't think that the burning of the book was the correct way. There were peaceful protests. They thought that was the way to express their views. But what happened within the wider British South Asian community was that the Hindus and the Sikhs and some Muslims wanted to distance themselves and say, we are not like them. We respect British values. We are more tolerant. And so that was a big event that made them distinguish themselves, but it also brought religion to the fore as well within the British South Asian community. How much did events back in India, Pakistan and Bangladesh affect the communities now living in Britain? I think the clearest example of that, certainly in this series, is the 1984 storming of the Golden Temple. Now, the Golden Temple is the holiest shrine to Sikhs. And it happened because for months, Sikhs, many of whom were heavily armed, many who wanted to seek homeland uh, and felt that the Hindu majority were not respecting their rights. Indra Gandhi, who was then Prime Minister of India at the time, ordered the army to go in and flush them out. And what then ensued was fighting within the temple and many hundreds of people died. And British Sikhs who were living here were watching these scenes unfold on the television, listening on the radio, and they couldn't believe what was happening to their holiest shrine, it felt like a desecration. And that 
was a moment that I hadn't quite understood, which was a hugely profound moment for British Sikhs and still remains so. One man described it as significant as 9-11 for them. It was such a turning point. And it was the moment that made British Sikhs feel not only their Sikh identity, but also made them not feel Indian anymore. And something else that you cover in the series is politics. And you describe how at the start of the the decade, typically South Asian communities would vote for Labour, but that was changing in the 1980s. And I wonder if you could explain why that was happening. So British South Asians uh, had always voted Labour predominantly. And that has a history. Prime Minister Clement Attlee was the one who granted independence to India and Pakistan. And Winston Churchill had always vowed he wouldn't do that. So already, as one of my interviewees say, it was in their DNA before they'd even arrived that that they were Labour supporters. But I think a lot of British South Asians and their children felt that the Labour Party were more sympathetic to migrants and their community. And so a lot of British South Asians ended up working in the Midlands or in uh, the the mills in the north of the country, which were traditionally Labour strongholds. So that was the pattern of of voting. But Margaret Thatcher, who had anti-immigrant rhetoric and also some of her policies could be perceived that way, she also realised that the million-strong British South Asian community at the time had values which were very Thatcherite. A number of them were self-employed. They had tight-knit family units. They were hardworking. These were values that she respected. So she did try and begin to woo that kind of class of British South Asians. And we meet uh, the first British South Asian female conservative parliamentary candidate. She stood in Ladywood in the Birmingham constituency. She didn't win, but uh, she was a proud conservative and she talked about going to Sikh families, the the Mirpuri families in in Ladywood. And actually, they'd all said to her they'd never voted Conservative, but they voted for her because she was one of them. It was quite interesting. And by the 1987 election, I think the share of the vote for British Indians was almost 25% for the Conservatives. So it had, you know, her, her targeting had worked. And Keith Vaz was elected in 1987 in Leicester. How much of the economic dislocations of the 1980s affect the Asian communities? Hugely, hugely, because they came uh, predominantly in the 50s and 60s, and they were working in the mills and factories and foundries. And those were the industries that were hugely affected by some of Margaret Thatcher's policies and by the industrialization. And so many of them lost their jobs. And we speak to people whose parents did in the factories. And so they had to reinvent themselves again. And some did successfully and became entrepreneurs. They opened shops, small businesses, and they did do they did do pretty well. But remember, these were people who were used to reinventing themselves. They'd had to do it once before when they first came. And so when they saw opportunities, they did it again. And remember, by this time, it wasn't just the three-pound generation. By the late 60s, early 70s, we see predominantly Gujaratis coming from East Africa. And they were the business class. Now, some of them, when they came, the only jobs they can find were factories. But these were people 
quite used to running businesses. So again, that British South Asian community was doing well and thriving and prospering as well. And taking the story up to the present day, you talk in the last episode to some of these people about how they feel about their place in Britain now. How much has that changed since the 1980s? It's really interesting. I've been interviewing a lot of my interviewees for over five years, and I always ask them, who do you feel you are? Where do you think you come from? And it's really complicated. It's not a quick answer because there's the place of your birth on the Indian subcontinent. Now, remember, if you live through partition, you may have had to move from one country to another. But then you also have an identity with the region that you're born. So Punjabis feel very Punjabi. They have their own language and culture and tradition, as do Bengalis, as do Siletis, as do Mirpuris, as do the Gujaratis. And they feel that great affinity to their region. And actually, your affinity to your region can sometimes transcend religion which I found really interesting. But then you have your religious identity too. And then you have your British identity. And so that's for the first generation. And the second generation, they feel all that too. Now, maybe their sense of being from a region or even their religion is somewhat diluted from their parents, but they they still feel that too. But what I found quite interesting was that The last set of interviews that I did was around 2015, and I speak to these people off the record. But I was doing on-the-record interviews in 2019, and things had changed for them. Now, remember, these are generations that had lived through the difficult times of the 70s and 80s. They remember racism. They remember being told to go home. And the feeling was that progress had been made Significant race relations laws had been passed. There was this cultural flourishing. Things had moved on for the better. They had established themselves. But the feeling that I got was that there was a great sadness that some of the language that they had heard when they came or when they were growing up had seeped back in. Now, not to the extent, of course, that they remember back then, but it was there again. Things that weren't being said were being said again. And I think there was a sadness, especially when the children would hear that their parents, who'd been here, let's not forget, for 50, 60 years, were being told to go home when this is their home. And one man I spoke to who is an eminent professor at a London university really surprised me by saying that he didn't know what it meant to feel British anymore in the current political climate. And he struggles to articulate what being British means for him and how that cosmopolitan Britain that he had come to terms with, he believed was the country he lived in. It doesn't feel like that is the case anymore. And that saddened me to hear that. And I never imagined when I started all these interviews that I would hear them talk like that, really. And so what do you hope that this project, in some or the series you've done, might achieve and might be its legacy? Well, I started recording the testimonies from the 50s. I have another series, which will be the 90s, and I will go up to to present day. This is British history. And it's not history, as I said, that we're taught in schools. And... I think that if we as British South Asians don't know our history, 
that's not a good thing. But also it's important that British people know who they live alongside. Because ultimately, this is shared history. And I hope that my programs will start a conversation, but I know that they're being used as as teaching tools in universities. But it's important that we know who we live side by side with. But also, Britain and the Indian subcontinent have a connection that goes back 400 years. This didn't start with the 50s. It started a long time back. And I think this is part of a, a wider conversation that society needs to have. It's not about pointing fingers. It's about understanding empire, its demise, why migration happened, why Britain asked the people from its former colonies to come and help rebuild the country after the Second World War. Um, It's understanding who it is that you live side by side with. And that's one of the purposes of these series of documentaries. That was Kavita Puri. Series three of Three Pounds in My Pocket begins tomorrow, the 6th of December, on BBC Radio 4 at 11am. You can catch up with previous episodes on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again on Monday when Simon Parkin will be discussing a war game which altered the course of the Battle of the Atlantic. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.